0: The Bike Fit Podcast is brought to you by Bike Fit. Pain free performance starts at the pedal and G8 Performance 2620 orthotic insoles. If you want the full understanding of how amazing these insoles are, I strongly recommend you check out Episode 5 with the founder of G8 Performance, David Lee. G8 2620s are customizable suspension for your feet.
1: Almost every pain you see a person present with on a bike, in terms of leg, leg stuff we're talking about, from the feet all the way up to the hips and the back, the lower back, almost every pain you see is a one-sided pain. You know, Almost no one comes in and says, Neil, both of my knees hurt symmetrically.
0: Welcome to the Bike Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Damon Wyatt, Operations Manager here at Bike Fit. And today we're going to geek out on complex body asymmetries and their manifestation on the bike. I mention the word geek out nonchalantly in just about every episode title sequence, but I promise my guest today. Neil Stanberry will force us to swan dive in the deep end of body and brain functioning. At one point in the show, Neil starts discussing the central pattern generator, neuroplastic adaptation, mitochondrial load, and makes the mistake of assuming that I actually know what a sine wave looks like. A little bit about our guest... Neil is a physiotherapist who specializes in cycling biomechanics and injury management. He has been bike fitting for around 10 years and has a special interest in our topic today, which is complex asymmetrical motion patterns and injuries. Prepare yourself for a great talk on asymmetry, including numerous leg length discrepancy case studies as episode 17 with Neil Stanberry starts now. Neil Stanberry, welcome to the Bike Fit Podcast.
1: Thanks, Damon. Nice to be here.
0: Before we get started with today's topic of asymmetry and cycling, talk to me a little bit about your background in physiotherapy and how you ended up in the world of bike fitting.
1: Yeah, so it was out of necessity, as I think uh, a lot of people get into bike fitting, but I I did a physio degree over here in Australia oh, 14 years ago, I think I'd finished, and um, I started out just doing regular regular physio stuff that every physio does. And I got into cycling quite late. I think I was, I think I was 20, 21, 22 when I got into cycling. And I did what everyone does. I just jumped on a mate's road bike and thought, this is great fun, I'll I'll do this. And after a couple of years, I started developing some really severe left-sided knee pain when I was riding. And so I did what everyone does. I went and got a couple of bike fits, three in total, and that was a waste of a thousand dollars. Came out the other end with the same knee pain and I thought, well, you know, I've, I've got some knowledge of human physiology and anatomy and function. I, maybe I'll have a crack at fixing this myself. And that's actually how I got into bike fitting. I, um, The very first thing I did was I <laughs> Googled it. It's funny, we were just talking about Googling solutions to complex problems you and I before. Um, I Googled it and I I came across Steve Hogg's website, which has got a huge amount of material in there. And I I basically sat down and read it all in a week. And I thought, well, that that makes sense. And I busted out my video camera and stuck myself on a trainer and um, had a bit of a look at my own position using Steve's methods and um, gradually tracked down what my issue was. And it was a very, very complex issue. And I'm I'm a freak in the way that I pedal in that I'm a massive heel dropper by nature. And um, I've got incredibly flexible ankles and that kind of stuff. And so an incredibly narrow pelvis and lots of different complex sort of issues, which it all coalesced into this one-sided asymmetry problem. So I had, I had one-sided hip, back and knee pain. And eventually I sort of fixed it all myself and um, it took a long time. It was, it was a very complex, deeply embedded issue. And um, that was what got me into bike fitting in the beginning because because it was just it was a nightmare no one could help me in Melbourne where I was um, no one had any idea about this stuff and so I had to do it myself and that kind of got me interested in it I thought well if you know if these guys can charge 300 bucks and and know nothing about what they're doing um, perhaps if I you know got better at this uh, this could be something that I do and that's how I got into it in the beginning was out of necessity because um, (laughs) I had to fix myself you know and uh, when
0: was that Neil just to jump in when, when was that that because you had already had a degree at that point right in physiotherapy oh, yeah. you got the injury from cycling so when did you start getting into this you know fitting
1: I think I started doing it professionally about eight or nine years ago um, and ch- you know charging people for it in the beginning when I didn't know what I was doing very well I, I did a lot of fitting for free to sort of upskill myself and um, once I got confident enough that I was that I knew what I was doing and I could charge for the service, I, um, I started charging smaller and, and then progressively larger amounts as I got too popular.
0: <laughs> That's good. When you do a free fitting for someone, do you ever have dissatisfaction?
1: Yep, yep. If Sorry, if I have a dissatisfaction. <laughs>
0: Yeah, because if if it's free, right, you would think no matter what, if you're offering someone at the very beginning a free service, like, there's no way they could be dissatisfied, <laughs> right? Because in some way, you're helping them.
1: Mate, much like any complicated skill, complicated professional skill, when you start doing it, you are rubbish at it compared to when you've been doing it for ten years. So I, I would have rated my skill level when I first started fitting as being as being <laughs> as being worthy of, no, of of not paying anything for. <laughs> because I <was> just like <laughs> everyone, when you start out doing something, I was pretty average. But um, after many thousands of, of, of practice cases, um, I, I can do a pretty reasonable job most of the time these days. Uh,
0: I totally understand what you're saying. If anyone's listened to the last 15 episodes of me talking, they understand what a true beginner sounds like. <laughs> um, but, but, but Neil, I, you when you contacted me, you really intrigued me because you said, um, I specialize in complex asymmetry. Yeah, and can can you go into that and talk a little bit of that because that's what we're going to do today. But I'm just very interested in your experience and what you've done in this field.
1: Yeah, so sure. sure. So, um, look, bike fitting as a whole, as, a, as if you put it, if you put in front of me a perfectly symmetrical person with with a perfectly symmetrical body, left and right leg exactly the same length and strength levels, neurological coordination of the two sides of their brain and the the, the sides of their spinal column exactly the same. I could probably fit that person to a bike in about 45 minutes and do a very, very, very good job because no one is perfectly symmetrical. And I mean, no one is perfectly symmetrical. The only, the only variation is how asymmetrical we all are. That's where the complexity comes into bike fitting. And that's why I set aside three hours for a bike fit, sometimes more if the person's got a complex history of, of one-sided injuries or, or major asymmetries. So, Resolving complicated asymmetries is by far the most complex part of, of fitting a person to a bike. Cycling is a sport which demands the highest degrees of symmetry of any sport that I can think of. The bike locks you into three main contact points with the legs, we're talking about. You know, the pelvis and the two feet are locked into this fixed symmetrical relationship with this apparatus, you know, with the bike. And you've got, sitting on top of that thing, you've got a person with one leg that's three mils longer than the other, and one of their calves is bigger than the other, and they've got a stiff first ray on their left foot, and their left hip has got a bump on the the neck of the femur, so it kicks out at the top of the stroke. So you've got this person who's asymmetrical, who's trying to function really, really symmetrically. And they don't have to be perfect, but they have to be pretty good if they're going to do 50,000 repetitions of a pedal stroke every week. The symmetry levels have to be really high in the person's function. Otherwise, they'll, they'll end up with a, a problem. So almost every pain you see a person present with on a bike, in terms of leg, leg stuff we're talking about, from the feet all the way up to the hips and the back, the lower back, almost every pain you see is a one-sided pain. You know, almost no one comes in and says, Neil, both of my knees hurt symmetrically. It's always their left knee, or their right knee, or their left hip, or their right hip. It's always one side that cops the brunt, and that's because of the the way humans are built. We've got a, a dominant hemisphere in our brain, all of us, which controls one side of our body with greater fluency, greater greater sort of uh, neural coordination, and greater priority than the non dominant side. So the brain will always protect the non uh, sorry always protect the dominant side of the of the body with greater ability than it can protect the non-dominant side. So anyone who's been fitting people to bikes for a, a while will know that if you you have a, a wonderfully symmetrical person in front of you in a physical sense, and let's say that you, you give them a positional difficulty, a challenge, you, you put their seat too high, far too high, no one ever sits too high on a bike and evenly overextends both legs at exactly the same amount. What happens is they get too high and their brain goes, you know what, if I keep doing this, I'm going to injure both of my knees. So what I'm going to do instead of instead of injuring both of my knees, because there's a, an evolutionary imperative behind not having two damaged knees, what the person will do is they will drop their, typically their right hip down and forward to shorten up the plane of motion to the crank. Some people drop their left hip, but about 90% of people, they protect their right leg. So they'll drop their right hip down and forward so that their right leg is happy at the bottom of the stroke, and that then gives the left side a massive challenge. The, the left leg will overextend t- twice as much as the right. And so it's, it's as if their brain is is protecting their dominant side above and beyond their non-dominant side. So they will, that person will then end up with a left-sided pain whether it's in their foot or their knee or their hip or their lower back whatever so most people protect their dominant right side and so this is what I mean about asymmetry you've got this person who who's either physically very symmetrical or not but they're protecting in a neurological sense their dominant leg and so they they almost always most people with a a cycling related lower limb pain most people end up with a one-sided pain you know whether it's in their foot their knee their ITB their hip bursa whatever you know and it's because of these neurological protection mechanisms the brain is is prioritizing not having two injured knees above having one injured knee as it's preferable to have one injured side rather than two because you know from an evolutionary perspective i assume that the reason behind this is that you can still kind of hobble away from that lion that's chasing you but if you, you know if you've got one injured knee, but if you've got two injured knees, you are you are much more immobile, and you're much therefore much more much less likely to survive. And so dominance plays a key a key role in those um, in those protection mechanisms, dominance of the hemispheres of the brain, and and even even dominance of the um, the, the descending inhibitory and the descending excitatory neuronal connections in the spinal column, which which sort of control the the central pattern generator, which is a bundle of nerves in your lower back, which controls the act of cycling and pedaling and running and walking, is actually controlled by a small bundle of neurons in your lower back. And those are overseen by the brain, but not, not sort of directly controlled all of the time by the brain as far as our model of of lower limb biomechanics works. And so I assume also that there is some type of hemispherical dominance or, or unilateral dominance in the central pattern generator as well in the lower back. And so when people function with these asymmetries for a very long time, they adapt around the asymmetry first. So they might build up a bit of a bigger quad on one side and a bigger hamstring on the other side. And the, one of their VMOs in their, in their quad gets a bit bigger and the other one gets a bit smaller. But eventually they, their compensation strategies run out and they end up with a friction synovitis, which is like a you know a connective tissue inflammation, or a bursitis or a tendonitis or or something of that nature. And it's almost always on one side. And I reckon about seventy-five to ninety percent of those are left sided because of the tendency towards right sided dominance that that humans have. So cycling brings these things out because of the high degrees of symmetry that it demands from the rider, unlike any other sport, you know, running, you can deal with a leg length difference if it's, if it's small or medium size when you're running. So there's been no evolutionary drive to iron these things out over the millennia which is why people, people can have leg length. I saw a bloke last week who had a six, mill- six or eight-millimeter leg length difference, and he'd had multiple health professionals look at him over the years, and no one had ever picked it, but no one was looking for it. And this guy had been an elite distance runner and everything, never had a problem. But cycling, because of the degrees of symmetry that it demands, he developed problems from it, you know. So it really is a unique sport in that regard.
0: So you can have a pretty significant leg length discrepancy and be a runner or almost any other sport and that wouldn't come up because I mean I have heard of some people who have done things like specific orthotics because they do have a significant leg length discrepancy when I'm talking about like walking or running or everyday life. But is that abnormal? Most people just when they're walking or running can compensate?
1: Yes, yeah, look, it, it purely as with everything, there's a degree of individual variation. It purely depends upon the person and how well they compensate. I remember once I met a bloke, a builder down in Melbourne who came in for me to look at his shoulder and I was looking at his back with his shirt off and this guy had a huge leg length difference. It was up around 25 millimetres, about an inch, which is very large. You don't you know, see maybe one of them every year, you know, as a bike fitter. And this guy was in his late 40s, and he never had a problem with it. He never even knew about it. He never had any issues. You know, he wasn't a cyclist. If he was a cyclist, he would have been probably stuffed. Um, But as a a distance runner in his youth, never had a problem. And then the next person who walks in my door has got a six-millimeter difference, and they've got a big one-sided knee problem from it, just from walking. So, some people seem to have much less propensity to develop issues from it, and other people have got, you know, quite a big issue um, from a small leg length difference, and, and and anywhere in between. So, as as you said before, there is no there is no other sport where you'll you'll need this symmetry. Walking, running, you know, most of them you can get away with it, um, you know, but it's not not in cycling. It's um it's a rare person who can ride at a high level with lots of you know, lots of repetition of motion with putting out decent power because as your power levels go up, the, the connective tissue is under more load. It's a rare person who can ride for a very long time with a, a five, six, eight millimeter leg length difference and not develop a problem from it. So, cycling is very unique in that regard with the symmetry that it demands from your actions.
0: But you're also saying it's unique in a response piece as well, right? Like you just gave the example of the guy that has a large length discrepancy as opposed to someone having something smaller, there is potentially like, you know, some people can adapt to that even on the, on the bike to some extent, right. As opposed to other people who maybe, you know, it's, right away, just significant pain.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember seeing a bloke uh, called Ray Forbes down in, down in Melbourne, who is an ex continental pro. I think he did. I think he was a pro in Europe for a while. Um, back in ooh, would have been in the 90s and Ray, Ray just came in and saw that I had bikes up on the wall and we started chatting about cycling and I was again I was looking at his shoulder um, and this guy had a I said Ray you've got a big leg length difference it was 12 millimeters in the end and this guy had raced at pro level for 15 or 10 years never had a problem and he had one very overdeveloped calf which I, I assume I never saw him on a bike Um, But I assume his compensation mechanism for the leg length difference was to just point his shorter leg, to point the toe down and and keep the leg extension roughly the same. And that's usually the, the best compensation strategy to employ. And some people employ that even with with 30 hours of training a week and they they have no no significant problems and then you can get the next person who's got the exact same leg length difference and they will respond totally differently and, and they will have knee pain within 20 minutes of riding you know so it all depends on how well they compensate at an unconscious level and that's highly variable so that's what makes it interesting.
0: I guess that also is what connects this part to the bike fitting, you know, strategy versus this idea of, and maybe you can connect to that a little bit, because when you look at research, research is looking for commonality among people, among, let's say, a leg length discrepancy and how you treat it. But if it's highly individual and in how they respond, <laughs> does that not connect to fitting then? Is, is research and, and bike fitting maybe don't always go hand in hand?
1: Yeah. Um, yes, I guess I guess that'd be right, because you might find you find me 10 uh steve i remember steve telling me this years ago he said you find me 10 different people with the same physical asymmetry or the same physical problem and i'll show you 10 different compensation strategies for the same issue so um mm-hmm. the people that present to me for a fit 95 percent of them are coming because they've got a pain somewhere you know that you know you don't generally go and get a black fit if you feel great and there's nothing hurting so you know presumably I'm seeing a skewed subset of humanity which are the the people with with issues that you know pain or inflammation or whatever and and a lot of them are from asymmetries of these of this nature so perhaps I'm seeing most of the time I'm seeing the poor compensators and maybe there's millions of other people out there who ride bikes with big asymmetries that have no problems Um, but that's part of the joy of doing this I guess but you know, as, as I said, I would I would very very rarely see someone come in and say, "No, now everything feels great." You know, I just I just want to waste three hundred and fifty dollars just to make sure I look okay. You know, people come in to me to say, "My my knee hurts and I can't ride. I need help." You know, and um, so I'm I'm seeing that. Perhaps that sample of humanity who don't compensate as well as the others.
0: Well, there is a vanity to cycling too, so it wouldn't be too surprising if somebody came in and said, "Can you make me look better?" You know, so that's that's not completely disproportionate, true. but you'd have to have some deep pockets for that. One.
1: It, it has happened actually. Now, now that you say that, it has happened once. The guy's wife told him to come in because he looked terrible, and it's true, he did look terrible. So um, <laughs> perhaps perhaps it's not all that rare. <laughs>
0: So when it comes to what you do and what you treat, uh, how do you approach uh, an asymmetry or a leg length discrepancy? And and maybe this goes deeper in this question, but mm-hmm. what do you usually do?
1: So the very first thing I do is I, when I feed people, I, I go through the same a lot of the same processes that most of you, you, you good fitters do. I'll ask them a bunch of questions about their cycling style and injuries, particularly old injuries, big hits, contusions, major muscle tears, joint injuries, that kind of thing. And then we go through and look at them off the bike for almost half an hour, maybe maybe more if they're really complicated. And, and I look at them in terms of muscle bulk asymmetries. I look at them in terms of muscle length asymmetries. Although that's um, that's fraught with danger. Trying to mess trying to measure muscle length um, is a bit of a as far as we can tell, it's a bit of a misnomer. There's no such thing. Um, but We look at them in terms of structural leg length, pelvic motion, all this type of stuff. And we go over them basically with a fine-tooth comb. And most of what I'm looking for is differences between the left and the right side. And by the time we actually put them anywhere near a bike, we got a pretty good idea that, hey, this guy's got a shorter left femur by somewhere between five and eight millimetres um knowing of course that there's always a measurement error when you're when you're assessing these things off off the bike without you know using an x-ray machine or a cat scan machine it's pretty hard to tell within a couple of millimeters but with with good practice my my measurement error is down to usually about two or three millimeters looking at things like leg length differences for example and once we've got a pretty good idea of, of them off the bike we throw them on the bike and we see what they're doing and and we look you know when you've seen a million people with a million pains, they'll start, you, you can kind of tell how they're going to ride before you even throw them anywhere near a bike. And I I tend to point out to them visually all of the asymmetries and, hey, look, your, your right knee's diving in towards the top tube, your left knee's kicking away, and, and I show them all the stuff. And, and if it's a really big one, sometimes I'll take a quick video of them. Just just to show them, you know, and then and then uh, they they understand. Okay, well that's why my left knee is hurting because it's kicking away. And we try and formulate an idea of why that's happening. You know, what what issues are they compensating around? Is the cleat is the cleat position too far forward? Is it too far back? Do they have a leg length difference? Is one of their sacroiliac joints jammed and not rotating forwards? Have they got uh, really poor proprioceptive input from their feet? Um, is the seat far too high or too far back or too far forward or too low? And, and we then go, I, I call it an exercise in decompensation. What we're trying to do is remove their need for their brain to compensate around their positional errors. So we go about setting the seat height, the seat setback. We, we use shims, leg length shims. Um, if they've got two different sized feet, it's well worth experimenting with a staggered cleat position, um, because, Having a symmetrical cleat position on the shoe is is, is sometimes not the, the best solution if they've actually got two different size of feet, um, because that that cleat position is actually um, actually asymmetrical or, or different left and right because of the two different size feet, even if it looks the same on the bottom of the shoe. So we go about removing all of their compensatory patterning if we can. And leg length difference is just one of those, one of those things, but it's, it's one of the bigger ones. You know, if if the person's got an eight mil leg length difference, you've you've got to correct that as a matter of uh, priority. Otherwise they're going to, they're going to, they're going to have trouble no matter what. And so I think that's got to be the process is look at the person in great detail off the bike first, have a set of theories like, right. I think this guy's got some, some hip impingement. He's got, he's got no internal rotation on either hip. And so I think he's probably going to do well with his shorter cranks or a wider Q factor, you know, to uh, – and, and so you'll have that in the back of your mind when you're fitting the person, hey, perhaps we should try widening this guy's Q factor if we have a lot of trouble getting in good – you know, getting in nice and symmetrical. Um, hey, this guy's got a, a 5 millimeter shorter left tibia, so perhaps we should try shimming his, his left foot by 5 millimeters and see what happens. And so I then <laughs> – I describe the process to my clients as um, – as educated guess and check we've got a pretty good pretty good idea of who they are off the bike and then we we guess look we're going to take a punt here and put a five mil shim under your left foot and see what happens you know and some of them don't pan out and some of them go some of them you know you'll make the change you go wow that that's massively improved your symmetry or widening your q factor has improved your symmetry or making it narrower or whatever it is and so you go through that process of step one step forward one step back two steps forward one step back And eventually, you come up. You come up by the end of a couple of hours. You've you've nailed down. Hey, this guy needs a three millimeter stagger in his cleat position with the left cleat forward because he's got a three millimeter longer left foot. He needs a two millimeter shim underneath right foot or whatever, and he needs a narrower Q factor or or a wider Q factor or whatever, as well as the seat height and the seat setback and the reach and the drop and all those other fairly straightforward things so it's a process of complex trial and error to see what gives them the best symmetry and you can tell a person is really happy on a bike you can tell their nervous system is happy when they're pedaling with really good symmetry you know both knees are tracking vertically over the pedal they're not dropping one hip most importantly when their pelvis is is perfectly square to the bike when it's not oblique you know they're not sitting with their right hip forward they're not dropping their right hip on the downstroke, that type of thing. That's when people go, Oh, geez, that feels a lot better. You know, that, that that's the that symmetry. Once you get it close enough to ideal, the person's nervous system seems to breathe a large sigh of relief a lot of the time. And often the rider will feel that and go, Oh, geez, that feels amazing. You know, what, what did you do there? And so, um, the writer will often tell you when they've attained good symmetry, as well as well as you being able to see it. Hopefully,
0: yeah. So the combination—you see it, they feel it. Verification is really what you're looking from both sides of that that equation.
1: Yeah, you've got to be you got to be careful though, because some people can't feel it. They just have no <laughs> no body awareness from the shoulders down. So they 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 say, "Well, mate, that feels the same as before." And I say, "Well, trust me, your left knee's not going to hurt anymore." <laughs> but most people can feel it, yes, when it happens.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So some people don't necessarily even feel it, and so you are saying, "Yeah, this is this is going to be better." And so, if if that's the point, do they tell you that later to have that positive moment, since it's not the aha in the studio?
1: (laughs) Yeah, most of the time they they email me back in a couple of weeks and say, "Well, you know, my my foot doesn't hurt anymore, my knee doesn't hurt anymore, my back feels good." So, you know, I they may not be able to sense the asymmetry or sense the symmetry difference but at least they know that they don't hurt anymore and I guess in some senses that is one of the ultimate measures of good symmetry is when nothing happens.
0: Yeah. When you don't have the pain anymore. Yeah. Well, let, let me go, let me go backwards a little bit to what you said. I want to circle back. There's a couple of things I want to touch on. So one is you're doing the assessment process off the bike to give you a pretty good idea of what you're going to do on the bike, uh, with the person when you do that 30 minute process you talked about. Yep. Do you ever see something different? Like in other words, what you assessed off bike shows up differently when they're on the bike?
1: Yes. Yeah. It, it's, it happens Less and less now that I've sort of gotten, essentially gotten better at the process. Um, but yes, that does happen. You you can look at a person and say, "Oh, gee, you know, you've got really severe hip impingement. I think you're going to have trouble at the top of the stroke with your your knees tracking fairly square, tra- tracking fairly straight." And then you throw them on a bike and the person's got this beautiful anterior hip rotation position, their, their torso position is really low and their knees are moving up and down like rulers, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So you 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 can you formulate all these theories and some of them just don't pan out. You just go, well, pff, that's not going to be a problem there, mate. So, you know, let's not worry about that. But it's important to know that they exist because if you don't know You know, if you have no theories about why they're going to drop their right hip or their left hip or sit with their left hip forward or overextend their left leg, if you have no theories about why it might occur, where do you start trying to fix it, you know, when they're actually on the bike? You've got to have a starting point of, okay, I need to change these four things as a matter of course, because these are the things that are most likely causing this person's problem.
0: Yeah. So speaking of starting points then if you're talking about a leg length discrepancy starting point, if you find somebody around, let's just say eight millimeters, do you start with, I mean, I know there's a lot of the factors here and I'm simplifying the heck out of this and you can take this apart, but do you then start with a shim at some certain level like that you've worked out with with uh, clients you've had in the past? Like where do you start shimming at that
1: level? Yeah, good question. Um, So let's... <laughs> Let's assume, I'll tell you, there's a couple of different types of, there's a couple of different locations that leg length difference could be. And let's assume that it's a structural leg length difference and not a functional one, which is just a whole nother topic. Um, So let's say that they've got eight millimeters of difference in their femur. So their tibias are the same length, their feet are the same, but, but one of their femurs is eight millimeters longer than the other. Generally speaking, a person with a longer femur Will require a shim that's that's smaller than the total difference. So if they've got an eight mil difference, that most people will need a shim of somewhere between three and five millimeters. Just in my experience, because the femur, the femur causes less trouble than the tibia when it comes to leg length differences on the bike. Presumably because. it it, it's not moving in such a vertical plane, you know, the tibia stays more vertical through the stroke. So if the person's got an eight millimeter femoral difference, they might only need a five millimeter shim to function with good symmetry. If the difference is in their tibia alone, if that eight millimeters is only in their tibia, it's very likely that they'll need a shim of somewhere between six and eight millimeters. It's not unheard of that it could be as little as two or three or four millimeters for good symmetry if the person's an excellent compensator but most of the time as, a, as a, I hate this 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 wording but as a rule of thumb you could what I would do is, is throw a five mil shim underneath that person's cleat before we start. And then what I do is creep the height of the shim up incrementally using like an in-shoe shim because it's really easy to remove the person's shoe, remove the inner sole, slide in a two millimeter thick piece of foam, EVA, like a medium density EVA foam, and then put their inner sole back in and shove their foot back in and then get them to pedal. That process takes 20 seconds. Whereas if you want to raise the shim height by two millimeters, you've got to take the cleat off, get some longer screws, make sure it's, it's a bit of a mission. Um, so I will I will get them close and then I'll creep the shim height up using something inside the shoe. and you can only get about three millimeters inside the, the shoe before their, their foot won't fit in anymore most of the time. but that'll then you'll go right. this guy's functioning best with a six mil shim and if I go to seven, he has trouble getting over the top of the stroke with that shorter leg and it's it's obviously not right. and and if the person's got good feet if you're if they're giving you good feedback, um, on the symmetry sensations, they'll be able to tell which shim height is the best, typically within one millimetre as well. And so I've found that long-term I have to be correct within, within a one or two millimetre range long-term um, for the person to be really happy. So, um, And you want to you hear another funny anecdote. Let, this happens quite regularly. Um, I came across another one of these last week. I had a person with a five or six millimetre longer left femur and a five or six millimetre longer right tibia. So their overall leg length difference was identical, but one of their tibias was longer than the other, and the opposite femur was longer than the other. <laughs> and so there's a good trap. You know, this, this person needed a shim underneath the leg with the shorter tibia because the tibia affects leg length difference more than the femur during the, the stroke for, for most people so this person ended up with a, a three or four millimeter shim underneath the leg with the shorter tibia even though their overall leg length difference was identical um so <laughs> there's all these like layers within layers of, of complexity which can occur and you've got to be a little bit careful checking all those things out
0: Yeah. That's a heck of a nuance there. I think that's probably the first. I've heard a lot of stories, but hearing it in different parts, you know, tibia versus femur and then one on each leg and then how they compensate. And then what you have to add to that is a severe specialization. I mean, that's next level.
1: Yeah. And and if you've got, if you've got a jammed sacroiliac joint, so years and years of functioning on a bike with a good, a good one-sided hip drop often leads to a stuck sacroiliac joint on the opposite side. So if the person's been dropping their right hip for a long time, their left sacroiliac joint will will be posteriorly or or backwards rotated and jammed in that position and it's not able to roll forward cleanly. And so that creates an effective leg length difference, like a a functional leg length difference, which is uh, (laughs) another another layer down the rabbit hole. And... um, if you've got a shorter hamstring on one side um, that's that's been torn, it's got a lot of scar tissue in it. That'll create a functional leg length difference. So yeah, there's a lot of other um, a lot of other things apart from just structural bony differences in the leg, um, which can cause functional leg length differences. Often often they're layered on top of a structural leg length difference just to make your life interesting. And um, that's where that's where bike fitting becomes a real art form and that's where I see the biggest failures. Um, people who've had five different fits, you know, I, I I remember one of the worst ones I ever saw was a a bloke, a doctor from the UK who came in, who had multiple fits in the UK. He was a category one racer over there. And the last guy who'd fitted him was the, 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 physio who fitted one of the, one of the pro cycling teams who I won't name. And, um, the guy spent two hours with motion tracking software and infrared dots and stuff, but he only ever looked at him from the right-hand side. He never went around the other side of the rider and looked at his left leg. So this guy had a, a major one-sided knee pain, which was preventing him from trading and riding. And again, this is a, a person at a very high level, never looked at them from the left-hand side, only ever looked at him from the right-hand side. And this guy had a 12-millimeter leg length difference that no one had picked up over over 10 years of racing and having bike fits and seeing physios and stuff and it was really obvious it wasn't a well hidden leg length, length difference it was very very obvious so this is just something which uh, as, as much as i hate to say a lot of people just don't look for this stuff or they don't know how to and it it sh- it is really the the major complex part of fitting a person to a bike is getting them to function with good symmetry and Everyone should be looking for this stuff, um, unless you're just doing some quick fitting session in a shop to to just get the person out out and riding on their bike. Any person who's charging for who's charging a decent amount for a high quality fitting session, they should be spending a lot of their time ironing out asymmetries. You know, because that is really where the complexity comes into it
0: that's That's a good story and 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 not something uncommon, right? You hear some of the stories where people have gone from fit to fit to fit and they have such complex issues, so it's you know I know there's a a small population that is really looking at those things, but let me go back to leg length and believe it or not, we definitely will probably go into functional versus structural, so prepare yourself <laughs> for that one yeah. uh, you 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 led me ahead of time, but i I promise I'll come back to that so when you're looking at the structural leg length difference, does it matter whether they've had this since birth? Like this is just who they are, or does it matter that they had an injury at a certain point in time that created it? Does that change how you treat it and what you do?
1: No, not really. As long as you as long as you identify it and go, Well, you know, I for example, I had a rider just, just before I moved up from Melbourne, um, a rider who had a crash and and broke his femur and had like a, a neck of femur impaction fracture which which essentially shortened his, his I think it was his left leg. It shortened his left leg by six millimeters according to what I could what I could measure and see. And it was really ironic because this guy, that leg previously was about six millimetres longer than the other one, so he broke it and shortened it so that it was almost exactly the same length as the other one. Um, But the process is still the same. You know, you you identify it off the bike and then you assume that this person is probably going to function with better symmetry if you use a shim or, you know, a leg length compensation device and you then test your theory. And if it doesn't pan out, it doesn't pan out, but you've got to test the theory, you know? So I find that people who've had an injury that have shortened their leg, they function much the same as a person who's had their leg length difference their whole life. With the possible exception of, um, you know, if the leg length difference injury, if the injury has caused a lot of muscular imbalances, you know, this guy was laid up in bed with a broken femur for six weeks. So his leg had wasted away. So he had some functional leg length difference layered on top of the the structural difference, which was there. So um, generally speaking, you'll need to use a shim for both situations, functional or structural.
0: Okay, so let's go into that. So you talked a little bit about this. So can you explain kind of the difference with the functional here? You did touch on a little bit and then how you would work with a functional leg length di- uh, discrepancy versus a structural leg length discrepancy.
1: Yeah, so I guess the big difference is if, if you've done a good job assessing them and you say to the person, Listen, Steve, I reckon that your left leg is functioning shorter because your your hamstring has a large old tear in it and a bunch of scar tissue which prevents the muscle spindles from lengthening rapidly. So that that's that's you know, it's it's requiring about a four millimeter shim to get you decent symmetry, even though your, your bones are all the same length what you then say is, you know perhaps some really good deep tissue massage a, a, a long regime of stretching and plyometric stretching and that type of stuff we'll will we'll get you will give you this advice at the end of the fit and if you go and act on this we'll see you in about 2 or 3 months and see if some of that shim can be removed so the difference with a functional leg length difference the main difference is often if you solve the causation behind it the shim can be deleted if the person had a a stuck sacroiliac joint preventing their leg from extending freely um and and the pelvis from rolling down and forward on that side if they if they can unjam that sacroiliac joint and get it all moving with the help of a good you know physio chiropractor osteopath whatever often the shim that was required to deal with that can be deleted at a later date whereas with a with a structural bony difference it's that that shim is going to be with them forever most likely unless they unless the bone somehow lengthens or shortens again you know so it's most it's much more likely to be permanent if it's a structural difference the, the shim is more, much more likely to be permanent
0: interesting and so you're finding this out a bit with your assessment process so historically and the assessment you do that's how you figure out whether or not it's functional or structural
1: yeah yeah look for, the first thing is most people generally remember if they've broken their femur so they'll tell of course. Me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yes, I shattered my tibia. That's right. Oh gee, that was only last week. I forgot about that. You know. People generally remember the injuries and, oh, yeah, I, I ripped that hamstring really bad 20 years ago. That's why it feels all lumpy and tight, you know. So people remember the injuries and if they don't know that they've got a, a, a jammed sacroiliac joint, for example, you should pick that up in your assessment. Yeah, absolutely.
0: But going back to the way you were compensating, you were saying that someone with a functional could – either put in the legling shim and then potentially do some kind of an exercise regimen and process, which would have them shim less. But if they use the shim and they didn't do the exercise, would they be fine?
1: Yeah. it de- <laughs> As with almost everything is the, the answer is it depends on how, how messed up they are. Is something like a, a stuck sacroiliac joint. You can shim that person. You can get their position really good, but their leg will never function they will never look perfect and they'll never feel perfect. A a sacroiliac joint problem is a a massive, massive motion issue, which can never really be properly worked around. So that really needs to be resolved off the bike. Um, But if it's something like a, a, you know, a bit of scar tissue in their Achilles tendon or something from an old injury, that, that they will feel and look pretty good. You know, you can get them pretty good. And and, and the symmetry of the rider never has to be perfect. It just has to be good enough that, that, they can't sense it, and it doesn't cause them any pain, and it, and it's not likely to cause them any pain in the foreseeable future. So, for people with big old injuries like that, most of the time it's a it's a matter of getting them as close as you can to good symmetry, so that they don't develop more issues from compensating around their injury. You know, so um, they you you'll never get everyone perfect, but you can get them pretty close, and often that's good enough. Let me
0: switch uh, switch gears a little bit here. I have to tell you, I spend a decent amount of time looking up fitting and fitting websites because I'm a huge geek. I, I found something on your website that I've actually never encountered previously. And you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the conversation. You have a page on your site where you talk about neuroplasticity, habituation, and the central pattern generator, right? I mean, yeah. you talked about this a little bit earlier. How does this stuff connect to fitting? And can you kind of bring this to light for everybody?
1: Yeah, look, um, what's the easiest way to say it. M- motion patterns are uh, controlled or overseen by the brain, if particularly if it's a one-off motion pattern like hey I'm, I'm going I'm gonna pick that thing up off the floor you know, or I'm going to swing that axe or something. if it's a one-off motion, the brain will initiate and control the motion. If it's a repetitive motion to do with particularly to do with locomotion, which is you know walking and running and that kind of stuff, that's mostly controlled by the central pattern generator which is overseen by the brain but not directly controlled that's why people can walk around and text on their phone while they're walking they can even step over things while they're texting on their phone you know because they're not walking using their brain they're walking using their central pattern generator and the reflex arcs in their in their spine and in their in their leg leg nerves and that sort of stuff so these these are ways of I guess you could call it neural efficiency. This is the way that the body has, evo- has evolved to use less neurological energy, so that the brain can be, de- you know, can do other things. The brain is a huge energy drainer when it's thinking, when it's doing stuff. It uses a lot of electrical neurochemical energy. So the system has become um, streamlined. As you know, evolution has a wonderful way of doing this. The system has become streamlined so you know the the brain can oversee these things and say hey don't trip over that log when you're walking along and it will it will lift your your leg over the log but as soon as you start walking along in a straight line again the central pattern generator takes over and and controls the act of walking and cycling and and running are the same you know so what we're looking to do I guess is to, to keep your central pattern generator happy when it comes to cycling so that it can function with high degrees of of left and right symmetry. Um, Because anyone who's ever sort of ridden along with a one-sided knee pain and they go, well, you know, if I pull that knee in, it doesn't hurt as much. But as soon as you look at the tree or look at the rider in front of you or look at the road, your central pattern generator takes over again and the knee starts kicking out to the side again. So our job is to make them unconsciously happy when they're riding in terms of their motion patterns you know and that's all controlled by the central pattern generator now habituation and the, the neuroplasticity stuff neuroplasticity is just the idea that that your nervous system is, is plastic it can be altered and changed if you ever have a read of um uh i think it's norman doidge's book um, called the brain that changes itself it's a book about essentially about stroke stroke injuries you know people have had a stroke and, and the way their brain can then relearn patterns of you know neuronal connections to give them their motion back or their speech back or whatever so the brain is quite plastic it can be it's quite moldable it's quite adaptable when it comes to neuronal connections new ones can be formed old ones can be deleted that type of stuff and the same thing occurs to a lesser extent in the peripheral nerves you know in all the nerves in your arms and your legs and stuff Um, I have an operation on my left wrist which which cut one of the nerves and I had no sensation in part of my thumb for months and slowly it came back as the nerve rewired itself around the injury so plasticity or neuroplasticity just refers to that that idea that the nervous system is adaptable and can change and alter itself and repair itself to some extent yeah and so we're dealing with neuroplasticity in the way that when we make a bunch of changes to people's positions often it takes a little bit of an adaptation period for their central pattern generator and their cerebellum to really learn what's going on and and alter their movement patterns so you, you might look at them on day one after you've made all these changes and they, they look reasonable but not amazing and then you see them again three weeks later and they look fantastic so they've adapted around the changes that you've made and a lot of that is neuroplastic adaptation.
0: And that's pretty normal, right? You would say this is something to talk about because there's different people have mentioned this idea, not the idea, this, this, this portion where it takes a while for a person to adapt. Does that ever cause somebody to have some kind of alarm? Like, even though you change the position, you feel confident with the changes that you made, but the person doesn't necessarily show that right away or doesn't feel that right
1: away? All the time. Yeah. When you get good at it, you can warn them. Um, for example, a client that I had last week, um, I said to him, Look, your left hamstring and your right medial quadricep are gonna cop a flogging now that you now that you're not dropping your right hip anymore. These muscle groups which were atrophied and not, not functioning much on the bike are now gonna cop a, a lot of extra mitochondrial load. You know, the mitochondria are the little energy delivery systems in the muscles, and they're gonna be working a lot harder in these muscles, which have been on holidays for a long time. So you warn them of that, and you know the, this rider emailed me five days later and said you were right. You know the left hamstring is really fatiguing rapidly on the bike when I'm when I'm doing an interval, and you know I assume his right VMO is copying a bit of extra load as well. But over time, those that mitochondrial density will build up, the neuroplasticity will, will kick in, and their their, their body will, will will sort of function with higher degrees of symmetry, and their muscle system will even itself out. And that sensation will disappear. But it might take six weeks, you know, or two weeks or or 10 weeks depends upon how messed up the person was and how quickly they adapt. And some people adapt nearly instantly to big changes and other people take quite some time.
0: Right. But you're able to explain that like in a way that's more eloquent than saying you're really messed up. This is going to take 10 (laughs) weeks because I mean, I I think some of that's probably hard from a consumer standpoint who may not really understand this, maybe not understanding a lot about their body and we're getting closer and closer to a generation in a world that expects something right away, right? If my phone doesn't open up a website within seconds, I'm I'm mad at that. I'm checking the internet connection. I'm like, what's wrong? Something's happening. So yet someone comes into you and spends a lot of money and you're kind of coming back to them and have to have a good way to say, yeah, you could basically feel awful for eight weeks.
1: Yeah, they never feel awful. They will feel different. They will they will notice load in places they've never noticed it before. They shouldn't have any significant pain or anything unless they're training way too hard for the adaptations to be allowed to happen. I always tell them, hey, look, we've made some huge changes here. You just need to ride real easy for a couple of weeks and let your body adapt under low load. Um, I, I prefer brutal honesty. Um, over tiptoeing around the tulips with some people. It just depends upon the person. You gotta you gotta read them the right way. And most people by the time they get to me with one of these complex problems that have defied a lot of other bike fitters, they they kind of know something's something's up. They they kind of know something's wrong, but no one can pick no one can figure out what it is. And so I will tell them, look, hey geez mate, you've got a, an undiagnosed 10 millimeter difference here and your seat's way too high and your cleats have been way too far forward for a long time. And these things are messed up, you know, and I'll certainly, I'll use those words if that gets it across to them, um, that they need to they need to ride easy for a couple of weeks and, you know, perhaps let's not do the fitting session before a 200K race, you know, let's maybe do it after that so you can adapt to the position under, under circumstances of low load. Um, but it just comes down to reading the individual person and what they're going to respond to. Some people prefer brutal honesty. And as long as they've got a solution ahead of them, I find a lot of cyclists are like this because a lot of them are so goal-orientated and driven. You just give them the carrot. You say, look, this is what you need to do. And they, they're they pretty good. They're some of my best clients at stretching that or strengthening this. Um, they're quite, often quite motivated to, to actually make those changes, whereas your average punter off the street who just wants his back to not hurt, well, they, they can be a little bit less motivated a little bit harder to, to motivate to do those off bike um, exercises or whatever it is that you're asking them to do. So cyclists, I find tend to be some of the most. By the time they get to me, and they're really, they're really quite. Um, they've been through the ringer um, with all this stuff. They, they're quite motivated to do whatever I tell them a lot of the time.
0: Well, it also sounds like you're very specific, right? So, you know, I've heard the phrase or I see people talk about it and say, well, there's, a, there's an adaptation period, which is true, right? But you were saying, here are the things you're going to expect. Yeah. Here's how you're going to feel. Here's the area where it's going to happen. So your specificity likely alleviates some of that concern of, yeah. is this working or is it not?
1: Yeah. And sometimes you get it totally wrong. You say, gee, mate, I reckon your hamstrings get it. You know, just keep an eye on these. They're going to really feel it and they have no problems at all. So it's better to warn them, though, that it probably will happen and, and, that it, and then that it doesn't happen. That, that's fine. It's when they um, when you don't warn them that, hey, look, I've just dropped your seat 25 millimetres, your hamstrings are going to be functioning at the bottom of the stroke like they've never functioned before, and you're going to feel some extra load there. There should be no pain, but it will certainly be some extra load. Um, and, yes, yeah, always best to warn them if you can with some degree of specificity.
0: And you also, you were just saying, give them routines as well. So you'll prescribe certain things for clients based off of what had happened or what you saw for the asymmetry and then how to work with that from the body off the bike to help.
1: Yeah, yeah. Some I, I try and give them the minimum of things to do because often often what you can do is sort of force them or push them towards better symmetry by riding in a good position. So what I mean by that is, like a common pattern is that they will have one hamstring weaker and smaller than the other, one the opposite quadricep is is built up and hypertrophied and one of their glutes is much bigger than the other. And you you make a raft of changes to their position so that they're now functioning with much better symmetry. And those smaller, weaker muscle groups will actually build up from the act of riding with better symmetry. So sometimes riding is actually the therapy, you know? Um, and and you see them again in three months, and hey, your two quads are back to being the same size, and your hammies have evened up. This is great. If the person has gone a real long way down this rabbit hole, and they're just so asymmetrical that you can't you you can't have a reasonable expectation that that's going to happen, I will get them to strength train these muscle groups, these contralateral muscle groups off the bike. You know, hey, let's do some single leg step ups off the edge of your step to strength like heel raises to strengthen your calf that's weak, you know, or we'll do some 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 Swiss ball rolls with with your left leg only to strengthen your left hamstring and so forth. So I'll give them unilateral exercises if that that's only usually necessary if the if the asymmetry has gone really far, you know, if it's very, very deep and and, and you've not had much luck getting them to function decently on the bike you know, you've, you've spent hours with them and they're still dropping their right hip badly because they're so muscularly asymmetrical. That's where you need to step in and do that stuff. And that that doesn't happen actually that often. Most of the time you can, you can do stuff to their position to get them enough symmetry that they will even themselves out just from riding in time, you know?
0: Does this connect to when you're looking at asymmetry along these lines, I know there's been more of a popularity in power meters, right? And so then that popularity has led to the left-right power meter, and so there's a lot of people who are sitting there, they pull in their numbers and they're analyzing their left-right balance. Yeah, does that actually correlate to what you see in asymmetry, or is that not necessarily the same?
1: Almost never is this is the strange answer. Um, what they do if, you, if you've got a power meter where you can pull out the the torque analysis. Um, you can sometimes see differences in where the power is being applied through the pedal. Um, but if you're just looking at your garment and it says 50, 50 and you're thinking, Oh, gee, I'm, I'm good. You know, <laughs> I must have killed it. Killed pushed. it. I'm amazing. Nail this. Or I'm 49 51. Um, what, What often happens is that let's say that if we pulled out the the sine wave, um, which is like you know you know what a sine wave is, namely up and down wave around around a central point. If you look at a sine wave of their torque delivery to the pedals, one of the let's say the let's say they're dropping their right hip, the right pedal, the right power, right sided um, power meter where it's where it's measuring the strain on the crank, it will have a much smoother torque delivery with a sine wave which looks more sort of normal up and down whereas the left side which is stabbing at the pedal all of the power is being applied really late in the stroke with a big spike so that the overall average of the of the 300 watts being delivered through through the you know through the power meter if you've got 150 coming from your right leg and 150 coming from your left that's great but if it's being applied at a totally different position in the crank stroke that that can you know that's where you can see the asymmetry. So something like a velotron or something which measures the actual torque um, where the torque is being applied in the stroke. That's where you can see it. Um, lots of lots of um, lots of computerised uh, trainers and stuff have got this now. But most of your power meters that you've got on your bikes, you have to sort of pull that data out, and really look at it um, to be able to see it. Um, but the actual overall amount. It gets it gets really tricky. Like um, when I was dropping my right hip badly a decade ago, and I, I had a really bad asymmetry. My left leg, the 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 one that was in pain, was actually delivering fifty five percent of the power, and only forty five percent was coming from my from my dominant, pain free leg. So you'd think naturally you'd think that the right leg is the one that you're dropping down and forward, the one that doesn't hurt, is producing more power, and it certainly felt like that to me. It felt like my right leg was my strong one, but the power meter was telling me my left leg was putting out 55% of the power. So um, it can get really messy where the rider's perceptions of what's happening are actually totally different to what the, what the power meter is telling us.
0: So you've just ruined it for thousands of totally. cyclists. Yeah. They, they all want to thank you for this as yeah. they rip their power meters off and throw them out the window. Well, so.
1: what, what you should take from that is – Don't worry about it a lot unless it's more than about a 5% difference as a general rule of thumb. Don't stress because that's sort of well within the normality range. Um, The problem is you get these cycling, for some reason, a huge proportion of cyclists are overly perfectionistic, hyper-perfectionist OCD types and they love looking at the data and that can be really, really bad because everyone, everyone no one is 50 50 all the time it just doesn't happen at really light load like when you're cruising along at 100 watts most people drift out to like 70 30 you know you look at right it's all over
0: a, the place yeah
1: yeah you look at them under a vo2 max load of like a three minute flat out effort and and they can be 60 40 but you look at them at a, on a, at a 20 minute effort uh you know around a threshold level and most people will be 50 50 or 48 52 or something so what load are you looking at the asymmetry under? If you're looking at it under a hundred watt load, your dominant leg just takes over a lot of the time. Um, so yeah, it, it's a um, it's an interesting thing. I I don't read into it too much, but it can be a good tool to send the rider away and, and they go, wow, look, that used to be 42, 58, and now it's 49, 51. That's much better, you know? Um, but don't read into it too much because there's a whole raft of complications which might be actually going on in the background that that you as a writer don't know about because you haven't pulled out the the torque analysis out of the power meter, you know?
0: Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, that's good news as you relieve stress. Uh, The bad news is there are thousands of other variables that we can pull from uh, data these days to obsess about. So
1: The good news is most of them don't matter. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it, it provides some relief uh neil thank you so much for talking about asymmetry today i really appreciate you coming on the show
1: no worries mate hopefully uh hopefully we got something out of it
0: a humongous thank you to neil Stanberry for divulging great information on our podcast i hope to connect with him again soon on another riveting topic If you're interested in contacting Neil or would like to follow up with some questions, I'll include his contact information on our podcast page where you can not only follow up with him, but you can join the conversation, add comments, check out previous episodes. Just head over to blog.bikefit.com forward slash podcast. That's blog.bikefit.com forward slash podcast, and you'll find all the info. You can also contact us via the Bike Fit hotline at 855-813-3233 or via email podcast at bikefit.com. While most of us are spending quite a bit of time in our homes, we at BikeFit are in the process of creating some amazing upcoming webinars. So keep it tuned to our BikeFit social media accounts for more information. Podcast fans! don't forget to follow us or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. It is the only way to assure that you will not miss a single mind-blowing episode. In two weeks, we will provide you with another amazing guest to expand your mind in the world of bike fitting. Until then, stay safe, get bike fit, and be merry. Have a great week.